RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. This week on Live Bold and Boss Up, we have Chuck Papa Giorgio here to share with you the top five screw ups that entrepreneurs make on a daily basis that ultimately results in failure of their business. So Chuck has over 20 years experience as a co-founder, CEO, president of several different organizations. We're excited to pick his brain. Lots of tips for you here today. Welcome to the show, Chuck Papa Giorgio. We're so excited to have you. All right. So Chuck, I'm, I'm super excited. I know Steph's super excited because, you know, we, when we talked originally, we said that we were going to chat about, there's so many things to talk to you about and to ask you about and ask for your advice. But I know the, the one thing that we were excited to, to get out of you was like what entrepreneurs screw up on a regular basis, which I think is so cool. I love that. Um, so let's dive in. I know we have like some top five things that we're going to dig out of this. Yeah. Top five screw ups, which I'm excited to hear about. Um, I'm sure a lot of people have done some of these before. Um, well, I can tell you I've done them all. <laughs> so, so uh, you, you or I'm helping people that have done them all. So yeah, that's uh, you know anybody who thinks that they're gonna launch a business and not screw something up, whatever they're smoking is good. They need to <laughs> right, everyone has screw ups. So um, the first one, the first topic was thinking raising capital is a metric of success. Um, tell us about that. How is that the number one? First screw up, I guess. Yeah, it, it's I, it's it's funny because it's become a a thing now that everybody thinks that the more money you raise, the more successful you are. But but actually, raising money is not a matter of success. It's a matter of creating more obligations. The more money you raise, the more obligations you have to meet. The more money you raise, the more commitments you have to deliver on. The more money you raise, the higher the scrutiny on everything you do. So everybody thinks that's the metric of success instead of the metric of success being did I build a successful company with the least amount of resources in the most efficient way with the highest leverage. And, uh, and, and a lot of entrepreneurs also don't recognize that raising money has a negative impact on your equity, for example. They think that raising money is a wonderful thing until they start realizing, wait a minute, I raised all this money and I, you know, uh, and now I'm, my equity went from 80% to 30% or, which is not a bad thing, right? Owning 30% of a billion dollar company is a lot better than owning 100% of a zero company, right? Mm-hmm. Zero is a crappy multiplier, right? right? You don't want to use that for anything. But, but the, the implications of raising money are significant. Um, the other thing that a lot of founders don't, don't recognize is that raising money puts you in a continuous path of dependency on your investors. So at some point, you need to stop raising money and focus on building revenue. Now, don't get me wrong. We have to raise money in some cases. And there's different kinds of money that you need to raise. So don't look at raising money as a 
symbol of success. I mean, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that raised a lot of money and crashed their companies and destroyed their investors' money. And statistically, eight out of 10 venture capital investments crash and burn, which means all the money that was raised didn't generate any return for the investors or for the entrepreneurs. You know, that's a good point, Chuck, because there's been so many news articles that I read, right? When you're, when you're doing some business development um, and that's the highlight, right? Oh, this company raised X amount of, of money to get started. And it's, it's viewed in a light that's positive, but it's a good point that you're making. It's, it's not really a sign of success of the company itself. Right. It's a, it's a milestone that says, all right, you needed resources to build your product or you needed resources to grow your company and you got them. The question is those resources cost. And sometimes it's equity, sometimes it's obligations, sometimes it's your job. I know a lot of, unfortunately, way too many founders who raise money and then get fired because now people are like, wait a minute, I just gave you a million, two million, 10 million, whatever the number is, and you're not performing. Bye-bye, right? So raising money in itself is is just another indicator. It's not necessarily an indicator for success. So what is the best capital structure to raise money? How does a business do that? What's the best ways, Chuck? Yeah, so so that's a great question. So I I tell people, uh, and I've built enough companies over the years, and I've always funded it myself until I did something that needed money from uh, investors, and all of a sudden I was subject to the same obligations that anybody else that raises money. So the, the, the best way, the best way to raise money is, is what I call the three Fs. Well, first of all, the best way to raise money is put your own money in. So you don't need anybody's money, right? Fund the company, fund the development, get to a cash flow positive, reinvest the money back in the company. That is the best way to do it. But it doesn't always work that way because sometimes you need <laughs> outside capital. So the best way to raise capital is, is an a, I, I call it the, uh, the either the money you support yourself or the three Fs, friends, family, and fools. Because <laughs> that's just people that are, you know, friends and family are going to give you money because they believe in you. Fools are just going to, you know, and I don't mean it in the <laughs> way, you know, fools, just people that are going to write your check because either they bought on the idea they believe in what you're trying to do, but they don't really want to put any constraints on you, right? So that's that's the, the best way to do it. But an even better way to do that is to raise money for your customers. So like a lot of these Kickstarter campaigns and and a lot of this, uh, the companies that, that raise money for customers, and I'll give you an example. We wanted to build a product, and, and I, I'll keep the names of the companies and individuals unmentioned for a multiplicity of reasons, but we were working on a product and we have a huge global company that came in and said, hey, can you solve this problem for us? And we said, yeah, because in the back of our mind, we're thinking, oh, there's somebody that's going to pay us to develop the first version of our product because we knew what they wanted us to solve was a product we wanted to build. So we said, absolutely. We gave them a sweetheart deal. They gave us about a million dollars. Over the course of a year and a half, we built the product, solved the problems. And by the way, we kept the IP. It was our product and we packaged it and sold it to other people. So that's the second best way is raise money from your customers. The third one is, look, there's a lot of times where the U.S. government will give you money to solve a particular problem. 
So if you can get it, and they don't want any equity. Now it comes with other commitments you have to make, like making the technology available and things like that. But you get a grant from a, cap, a government that doesn't take any of your equity away, and they don't have any controls other than you got to report what you're doing and actually do the work. That's great. The fourth one is get a bank loan and get a bank loan without a personal guarantee. Like I'm a big investor in a company right now. We took three loans over the course of the last six years, uh, SBA loans. All three of them require personal guarantees. But now we want to grow more and we're looking at somewhere around a half a million dollar loan. And the bank actually is now looking at us saying, oh, you know what? you got enough history, enough track record. We may not need a personal guarantee. That is the best way to borrow money. No personal guarantees. The business is solid enough to support it. And then, of course, sometimes you need to put a, a personal guarantee. The, the next way to best ways is money from what I call smart venture capital investor, smart money. And I'm going to put it this way. There's uh, green money, like the money that I talked about at the beginning. It's just money. People give you money. They don't expect anything. There's gray money, and that's money with brains that give you money, but you get a lot more than just the money. You get their brains that go along with that. And then there's red money. You go to bed with the devil, you wake up with horns, <laughs> right? So... Uh, and so the, the, the sixth smart way to do it is smart venture capital investors. And there's quite a few of them out there. Some of them are really good ones. But then there's that seven, this blood equity from what I call the vulture capital investor. And there's a few of them out there, right? I mean, there's some people that would just rip you to pieces. And a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs don't understand the difference between a early stage venture investor that's going to support the entrepreneur Versus the vultures that come in and they just look for an opportunity to take advantage of the entrepreneur. So that, in order of priority, that's the way I would think about this is the type of money that I would raise. Yeah, that's huge. Some major boss bites there. So you said, just a recap, you said the first one was the three Fs, friends, family, and fools, which I love that, the easy way to remember. Um, the second one is to your customers. Um, third, you said grant or government funding. Fourth is a bank loan without personal guarantees. Fifth is a loan with personal guarantees. Sixth is smart equity from venture capital investors. And then seventh is that blood equity from vulture capital investors. Yes, ma'am. Love that. And you know what? I love that you had several options before you even get to the bank loan, because I don't think many people think that there's other options other than the bank sometimes. So that's great. Right. And, and, and a lot of people don't, a lot of entrepreneurs think the bank is there to loan the money. That's not what the bank is there for. The bank is there to invest in assets that are going to be secure and get a return on. It doesn't matter how good your idea is. Banks don't loan money to ideas. Banks don't loan money to companies that are losing money, right? Banks have very specific covenants that they have to meet. So, before you go to the bank, you've got to have, you know, there's all these other options you can approach to do that. So. Yeah. So topic two um, in our top five, number two, it's confusing a proof of concept um, with a minimum viable product. <laughs> yes. So, um, so here how's that, here's how that plays out. I'll tell you a story. It's kind of a funny story. Everybody thinks 
that uh, uh, they, they, you know, they're going to write an app and they get 10 downloads and that is a great market validation that the app works, right? Or that they, they build a product and they have one customer and well, that means that's market validation. We have a product. So here's a funny story. Again, no names because I want to protect the innocent and the guilty. <laughs> but I, was, uh, I had a, a, a very large publicly traded company and I was on one of the, on that advisory board and advising them on advising them on new ventures and, and spin-outs and things like that. So they called me one time and said, look, we have this little project team, but they think they have the next you know, $100 million spin-up division of a company. And we want somebody who doesn't have a dog in the race to listen to them and, and give us some assessment. So I go to the meeting and, um, and, and these, this project manager is so proud of what he's done. They stand up and they talk about what the software does, really cool software. They talk about the problem solves, great problem. And then they're like, and we want to make this a separate division of the company. So I said, well, okay, so how do you know the market's going to buy this product? And he mentions this very global multi-billion dollar company and says, this company bought a license for our product. I'm like, well, that's awesome. How much did they pay? What, $20,000 a year? And I just fell off my chair laughing. I said, that company, that one particular company spent, and I knew that because I have another project that I did, they spent $50,000 a day for coffee in their cafeteria. Wow. So if this multi-billion dollar company, so only $20,000 a year value your software, and you're telling me your software is going to solve these problems for all these businesses, you might want to rethink market validation, right? And, and that is the one thing. A lot of people are like, well, you know, we... We have an app downloaded a hundred times or a thousand times or 5,000 times. Okay, but just because you got it downloaded, are people using it? And, and if you think your app is going to be sold to 10 million people, you know, the fact that you got a thousand downloads doesn't mean anything, right? It just means that you had a thousand people interested. So a lot of people confuse this proof of concept with a minimally viable product and what I call a market viable product. Because there's a difference between, sure, I've designed a cool app and it's viable and it does something, which is very different from I designed something or I build a product that I can actually take to market and sell. Two very different concepts. Good to know. Very interesting. Yeah. I, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more too, because I mean, for me, when I when we were talking about that originally and when we're talking about it now, you know, what what ideas or what advice or tips can you give them that it is a viable product? Like what should they look for then? If, if like a thousand downloads don't, you don't think is enough, what do you, what do you suggest? Well, so, so, so that's interesting. That's a, that is, that is quite frankly the challenge of a inventor or of an entrepreneur. There is no right answer. The challenge is to understand what it is you're building find the meaningful proof of concept, find the meaningful thing that it does, that is a, a clear indication there's a market acceptance. So I wasn't being flippant when I said, you know, a thousand downloads doesn't mean anything. Look, if your product is geared, and I'm just going to make stuff up just to kind of make a point. So let's say you came up with this awesome app or this awesome software capability or this awesome product that's going to make cancer specialists diagnose cancer faster. Hey, 
you get a thousand oncologists to download your app or buy your product, you're done. You're market validated, right? Because you can't get a thousand cancer specialists to agree on anything, right? So, but but if you say I'm going to create this this platform that's going to give me a marketplace for people to buy and sell their own used whatever bicycle wheels, and you get a thousand people to download it, then you know nothing else happens. Whoop de do, right? There's right. millions of people that sell bicycle wheels. So the question is always. What is a real market validation? So, and that's what I tell people, don't drink your own Kool-Aid. Don't buy, hey, we have a proof of concept. It's a minimally viable product. It's not a mini viable product. It may be a minimally viable product, but you have to have the right metric that makes it a market viable product. That makes so much sense. Know your market, right? (laughs) Know know what you're getting into. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Number three, confusing founder equity with friendship equity. Yes, that's a that's such a big problem, especially, and and I know you. <clears throat> I have a few years on both of you, so please don't be. <laughs> when I called when you I youngster, this, though, like, when I read this, Chuck, I was like, uh oh. I'm like, at least we're not in college, right? Like, <laughs> Stephanie and I are besties, and we're like, oh, I read that, and I had a heart attack. <laughs> so, so I see that it's such a big problem. I, I'm a, I'm on the advisory board at the University of Tampa. Of entrepreneurship, I'm a speaker at the Collegiate Entrepreneurs Organization conferences, and this particular subject is such an issue with younger people who, who don't understand the intricacies of equity and things like that. That we actually, I put together a model and a spreadsheet and a presentation. So every year, that's one of the talks that I give to all these aspiring entrepreneurs about that. And they actually, the title of the speech is "Why Your Room College Roommate Should Not Be Your 50-50 Partner." And, and, and here's what happens. In the end, it's all about creation of value and contributions to value more than it is about a relationship. And what happens, people, we all value relationships, right? Which is why we have families and friends and everything else. But as you start building a company, relationships may be important at one point, and then they may become a detriment to the company at another point. A relationship might require you to fire somebody you hired early on because that was the type of resource and expertise you needed at the beginning, but later on, it's not the right person. That, that's why the relationship should never be the metric of determining how we're going to split equity at a founder stage. There's actually a lot of models that are pretty clear that say, look, consider how much risk are you going to take? So maybe it's your idea, but I'm writing the big check. Okay, that equity distribution calculation changes. Let's say that the three of us, have, the, the, the three of us that start a company, and one of you is not going to give up your job. You're just going to write, put some money in, and then the two of us are going to work on the company. And then maybe one of the two of us is going to keep that day job, and the other person is going to be full time dedicated. Okay, the, the calculations change, and then the more people that you are the more the calculation gets more complicated. But it's it's a s- simple spreadsheet. And, and as a matter of fact, I will email it to you just so you, because I give it to all the students for free just to play with it. But there's a pretty reasonable, well-thought-out model for allocating founders' equity on how you think through that. Because And the other thing that you got to recognize is, hey, at some point, I'm going to take, if I take outside money, equity gets diluted even more. 
So when you started with, it was my idea. Well, great, ideas are a dime a dozen. It was your operational expertise that made it launch. Okay, now we have contribution of value from both sides, but it was Chuck's money that got us started or you know, granddaddy or grandma, somebody got us started, right? So all those things continually change. So the biggest mistake that early stage, especially younger founders make is, oh, okay, you're my friend. We work together. You're a good salesperson. I'm going to give you 50% of the company. And it's like, I'm telling you, I get called more often to resolve those kind of issues with early stage companies than anything else. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've heard that quite a bit just because we talk to entrepreneurs all the time. And I feel like that is a common thing. Now that you're saying that, I'm like, I've heard it a lot of times. And oftentimes they were early on in their career whenever they were first starting a company and it didn't work out. Um, and maybe that was one of the mistakes that they made. Yeah. And I've made that mistake. I've made that mistake early on and I gave away too much equity, too much control to people that I liked. And in the end, I lost control of my, it was one of the companies that I started that I gave a third of the company to two people that I thought they were going to bring all this revenue. And I was, I was young. I was, I wasn't, burst in all the things that I could do. I just gave them straight equity. And guess what? They didn't deliver. And because they didn't deliver, the company didn't grow and we ended up getting acquired by a bigger company. And guess what? They made as much money as I did. Actually, they made more because there were two of them than I did because they owned the company when they actually contributed nearly zero value. Wow. So, yeah, so- you have to work for the numbers. You know, equity, founders' equity should not be based on relationships be based on value contributed. Sounds like just a transparent conversation needs to happen in the beginning as if you knew, okay, what if we do make millions, right? Let's really talk through this. Let's just be transparent before we start. Yep. Yep. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I had this conversation about two months ago with a friend of mine, runs a successful, a very successful business. They wanted to spin off a division. They have somebody that they wanted to hire to bring in and they wanted to give her equity. And they went back and forth and it was a very, you know, it's a sensitive conversation, right? Because you're putting value to what somebody's contributing. So I, I sent him the spreadsheet in the deck and I was like, here, just share this with her. And once she went through that, it became, it was no longer an emotional value. It was like, all right, there's a formula. How do I fit into this part of the formula, this part of the formula, this part of the formula? And it became a, a, qu- a conversation about the mechanical calculations than a conversation about the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. I'll send it to you after we're done. Thanks. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. Topic four, um, confusing a data point with a trend and using it as proof. Well, it, it's same kind of thing as we were talking about, you know, minimally viable product versus market viable product, right? right. It's like, oh, gee, you know, we, uh, we sold uh, 50 licenses in the, not, in the last six months. Well, you know, if you're going to sell 50 licenses over the course of a year and you sold 50 in six months, 50 data points may be a trend, right? But if you're going to sell 5,000 licenses or maybe 50,000 licenses, that's not a trend. That's just a data point, right? And it's the same thing with, gee, we got a thousand downloads. Is that a trend or a data point? It goes back to the same conversation. Understanding what is the, how do you look at things that are happening in your business 
and determine if that's a trend or an isolated event. Because I give you an example, oh, we lost a customer. And I see that all the time. This big customer came in and they, they wanted a discount and oh my God, all our customers are gonna want a discount and we're gonna reduce our revenue. It's like, stop, take a deep breath. Data point or trend? You know, there's, uh, I have an old friend of mine, he's a, he's a rabbi uh, and he says, one of his favorite sayings that he used to tell me, he used to say, one person tells you you have ears like a donkey, ignore them. But when three do, go buy a saddle, right? <laughs> so there's a difference between there's a difference between a data point and a trend. And pay attention to that. Don't let data points distract you because stuff happens, right? Yeah. Pay attention to the trends. I love that. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. Um, topic five, last but not least. Um not doing enough due diligence on investors, which I feel like that's probably a big one. Yeah. So I, um, you know, investors come in multiple shades and forms. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a common mistake that early stage entrepreneurs make of, first of all, um, targeting the wrong investors. Um, and, and so let's start from that. There's investors that will never invest in a startup company. There's angel investors that would invest in ideas. There is uh, angel investor groups that would invest in a company that's got some traction. There is uh, uh, venture capital investors that will venture investment only if you have traction. There's private equity firms that will make an investment, but only if you have revenue and EBITDA and, and you meet their profiles, right? So. Uh, you know, let, let's just say, uh, you know, um, Accel Partners or KKR, a multi-billion dollar private equity firm. If you're looking for venture capital investment, I don't think Accel KKR has a VC firm, right? But, um, you know, in, the, in, in Florida, right here in Tampa, Florida funders. Florida funders will invest in companies early stage, but they have a certain profile. So if you go to them with something that doesn't fit their profile, you're wasting your time and theirs. So the idea, the first thing about investors doing the diligence is, is this, the, is this an investor that would even be interested in investing in my company? Otherwise, you're going to burn a lot of cycles, make a lot of phone calls, and it's an ugly process to begin with, and wasting time on people that you shouldn't, shouldn't even bother calling makes it even worse. And then even after you do that, there's great investors, good investors, bad investors, horrible investors. Investor wannabes, predators, excuse my French. Do your research. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to do your research. And and I'll give you an example. Um, There there was one individual, and I'm going to name him because I don't care. His name is Peter Martin Peterson. (laughs) Uh, Don't care. He can sue me. Um, You know, who, who went around town a few months ago and told people that he had all this money to invest, right? And a lot of companies signed up sign agreements, execute all kind of that. And it turns out he couldn't deliver the money. And a lot of companies thought, oh, we just executed a transaction. There is other investors that will come in and they will give you the right valuation and they make it sound like it's all happy and and all good until you get the legal document. And then you realize, wait a minute, I had a young young student, I guess relatively young, mid-20s, middle-late-20s, looking to start a company. She did an absolutely brilliant job building the company, getting it to a certain stage, calls me and says, I am so excited. 
I got this, you know, big name that's going to write a check for my company. I said, great. That's awesome. Let's go. And I, but behind the scenes, I knew this guy was absolutely a predator. Would never take money from him, right? But I didn't want to say anything because, you know, obviously there's issues with confidentiality and everything else. So what I said was, before you get all excited, let's wait until you get the actual legal document and then we'll rush through this. So she gets the legal document and I work through all the gotchas in the document. She's like, wow, that's a lot of gotchas. I'm like, yep. So let's remove them. So we sat down and removed all the gotchas from the document and send it back. And the investor just realized, oops, there's somebody watching out for this kid and backed off and didn't want to make the investment and got all upset that you guys are trying to uh, remove my safety. No, we're not. We're just trying to make sure you're not going to screw this young person trying to build a company. So you have to do due diligence on the investor. Even when the investors are legitimate, this one situation I was telling you before was a legitimate VC investor got a commitment from this individual that they want to put all this money, get all the work, and then this limited partner get a shrug with the money. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you got to be, um, you know, listen between the lines. So uh, if you call investors, you either love them or hate them. The problem is if you hate them, you can't say anything about it. Most of the times we all sign non-disclosures, non-disparagement. So you got to pay attention to what people say. If they don't say they love them, probably a little deeper. My favorite favorite line is, my mama said that if I have nothing nice to say, to say nothing at all. (laughs) If I say that, I didn't say anything, did I? Right. But I said so much. Right, right. You don't say I have another friend of mine that if you call him and ask him about certain investors, his word is, oh, man, they're serious investors. Right. Uh. Like, oh, Okay. And, and again, do your due diligence, listen between the lines, don't believe the hype and, and, and the stuff that's out there, right? Because that's, you got to do your due diligence. The moment you take money from somebody, it becomes a, a liability. Right. Yeah. Chuck, that's, that's some serious tips. We really appreciate that. That's huge. Right. I have a quick question and yeah. then um, we can wrap it up. But what is the best way to do your research? Is it by getting referrals or is it like asking around? Like, how do you find out about the investors? Yeah. So, I mean, start from good old Dr. Google, right? There's a lot of information about investors. And the best way to do it is find out where they made investments before and call the entrepreneur. Don't listen to anybody else because everybody else may or may not have an agenda. But an entrepreneur who took money from an investor is dealing with it day in and day out. And if they don't love them, if they're kind of tentative about the feedback that they say, if they, we, if they use wiggle words, if they say what mama told me is to say nothing, then you realize, all right, this investor, and I, you know, I'm not saying don't take the money. You may not have a choice. You might have to take red money, right? But at least know what you're getting into. Right. And that's great advice. Well, um, thank you, Chuck. So the top five, I'm going to include them in our notes on the podcast as well. I think that was all great information. And I love um, that we just talked about the screw ups today, like because everyone makes screw ups. So we all do. And everybody yeah. has to talk about the successes. But you know what? It's the one in 10 that succeeds. Let's talk about the nine that failed because I don't want people to get discouraged. Right, exactly. right. 
Well, thank you again, Chuck. And also thank you to Next Path Career Partners for all of your support. Yes, please uh, rate, subscribe, and comment on our podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Love the time with you guys. Appreciate all the questions. All right. Thanks, Chuck. And until next time, guys, live bold and boss up. This is a forking around town with Tracy Guida quick fix on Radio Influence. I grew up, you know, in San Francisco area, so I was an hour outside of wine country. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny, when I was a kid, I hated going to Napa Valley. Yeah. <laughs> we used to, like, my parents would drag us there. We'd have family or friends from out of town. And I remember walking into a winery, and the smell of wine used to make me nauseous. When, <laughs> this is back when I was, like, seven or eight. Yeah. And then as I got older and really started appreciating wine, it just became one of my favorite things to do. And I have such great memories of just driving up there every weekend and exploring all the different wineries and there's so much to know. There is. There and is. I've worked in restaurants most of my life. Mm-hmm. There's still so much I don't know about wine. Yeah. You know, that's interesting you say that because as a restaurant manager, I thought I knew a lot about wine, but I knew a lot about brands, right. which is different. Like once you start learning the grapes, the varietals, the regions, you can have any wine in front of you and kind of make some decisions on what you are going to taste or what you're going to expect from it. And those are things that I've learned when we do run out of a wine and we get another one that's similar to it. I can remember those references. So it just continues to build your arsenal of knowledge. And that's the cool part about wine because it's going to always change. You know, earth changes daily, you know, so the the vintages might be different year to year. Um, so it's always like a new experience when you're trying wine. Forking Around Town with Tracy Guida can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.